I can't be a good Jefferson performer unless I embody him warts and all. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for a rethink on Thomas Jefferson with humanities scholar Clay Jenkinson. Clay is host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and he has portrayed Jefferson in 49 states, and he's performed before Congress, the Supreme Court, presidents, and countless public, corporate, and student audiences. He is a fantastic performer, and I can't wait for you to hear more about what he does. He's a nationally recognized historian, author, and humanities scholar. You may remember Clay from A Conversation with Thomas Jefferson, episode 36, and also Dead Presidents and Living Statues, episode 38. Well, you know, since Clay first joined us, Some things have changed in our national dialogue related to how we talk about the legacy of Thomas Jefferson. And when tackling complicated issues like we do here at the Village Square, this is an ongoing process. So we asked Clay to join us for a third time so we could check in with him about how he sees the shifting narrative about Thomas Jefferson and also to talk about how we move forward from here. We think Clay offers really important insights from the perspective of a man who has portrayed Jefferson for 30 years and has struggled deeply with his own feelings about whether he should continue to do that. And listen, you guys, after we get all serious for a bit, we're going to lighten things up at the end with a surprise little cameo from Vita Woodrich. Vita is a regular facilitator with us. She'll tell a story about meeting Clay when he came to perform as Thomas Jefferson, all dressed up and everything. And let's just say she was a little starstruck. I'll let her tell the rest. So stick with us until the end for that. All right, before we get started, we would like to give a quick but very important thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. They actually partner with us on lots of programming, and we are so grateful for their support. All right, let's bring Clay Jenkinson in. And by the way, this episode is exclusive podcast content. So guess what? You are stuck with me for the duration. Let's chat with Clay. Here we are with presidential scholar Clay Jenkinson, host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And thank you for being with us, Clay. My delight to see you. Thank you very much. Are you okay if I call you Clay? Of course. Great. I love how in the previous program, you know, sometimes you're Thomas Jefferson and sometimes you're Clay. So I want to make sure I'm talking to the right person. (laughs) Well, I'm probably in a slightly better position than Mr. Jefferson to talk about his current situation. You know, I started working on Jefferson about 30 years ago, and at that time, he was riding high as without question, the most extraordinary of the founding fathers, our true Renaissance man, almost America's Da Vinci. 
And at that time, the fact that he owned slaves was regarded as sort of an asterisk, um, not particularly important in understanding him. And, uh, and he was almost given a pass as if he were a reluctant slaveholder. And if he could have snapped his fingers, he would have gotten out from under this horrible institution. But since then, in the last 30 years, and particularly in the last 15, uh, race has caught up with Mr. Jefferson. And now he's seen by many at the other end of the spectrum as a, a typical Southern racist and apartheidist, and uh, that his relations with Sally Hemings, uh, which are now beyond doubt, uh, are seen by some as, as rape. Um, and we know that although Jefferson wrote beautiful things and talked a good game, that he was never really able to extricate himself from the odious business of slavery. And at a certain point, he, he basically stopped trying. And so he's come down a long, long way uh, in the nation's memory since sort of the high water mark of his reputation uh, around 1975. How interesting. It strikes me that this might be especially interesting to you as a person who's portrayed him all this time. And how, how has that been for you personally to kind of, have you gone through a transition? Well, Vanessa, it's been a long relationship that I've had with Thomas Jefferson. I, you know, it's, it's like a marriage almost. I've been with him now for more than three decades. And as with all marriages, uh, there are ups and downs. There are times when I can't get enough of Thomas Jefferson. And then there are times when I can barely stand to be in the same zip code with him. And there's been disillusionment and you sort of fall out of love and then maybe you fall back in. There are a number of reasons to become disillusioned with Jefferson. One of them is race. Uh, a second one is his relations with Native Americans. He was effectively the, the father of the relocation, the removal policies that were ruthlessly used by Andrew Jackson uh, he also has been seen more recently as much more of a political actor than he likes us to know. He's always pretending that he's above the difficult and dirty business of politics and that he, he really is just wanting to live in a rational world. But in fact, he was an extraordinarily uh, good power politician. And so in, in so many ways, it's possible to become disillusioned with Jefferson. And I have at times. On the other hand, I love Jefferson. Uh, I deeply admire him. You know, he's a paleontologist. He's an architect. He's an archaeologist. He's the father of American library science. He's America's first great wine connoisseur. He's one of the great prose stylists in the history of, of, of American English. He wrote unbelievably important documents, including the Declaration of Independence in 1776, but also the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which passed in 1786, the most breathtaking statement of the freedom of conscience uh, ever up until that point and on and on and on. And so it's complex. It's, you know, as they say on Facebook, when you have to tell them your status, it's complicated. It's right. complicated. And I've suffered a little because of course I portray him. And, and here's the problem. I don't, you know, I have no ox in this fight. It's okay by me if Jefferson's reputation has suffered. In fact, he richly deserves it because you can't avoid the conclusion, however hard you try, that Jefferson was a racist. And you can't avoid the conclusion that Jefferson was essentially an apartheidist and that Jefferson was a hypocrite. 
And so you can wriggle all you want and try to redefine those terms and so on. But the fact is that it just really comes to that. But here's where it, it bothers me. You know, clearly I've taken a professional hit to a certain degree. Hamilton rises, Jefferson falls. Uh, Hamilton is fortunate to have one of the great musicals of our time, but that doesn't really upset me. What upsets me is that I have to say things when I'm in costume that I know are offensive to a lot of people, not just African-Americans or Native Americans. And I can't be a good Jefferson performer unless I embody him warts and all. And if I have to say things through his voice that I believe are wrong or demeaning or offensive, then I have really serious doubts about whether that's a good idea. But you can't whitewash Jefferson and just present the happy, positive, uncontroversial Jefferson, because that then it's no longer a humanities program. I'm, I'm not doing this as a someone dressed up like Lyndon Johnson or dressed up like Bill Clinton or dressed up like Rudy Giuliani. I, I do this as a humanities scholar. And that means I have to embrace Thomas Jefferson for all of his extraordinary complexities and paradoxes. And that really sometimes troubles me. And there are times when I just think maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. Maybe I shouldn't ever give any of my voice, my breath to repeating things that we now at the very least cringe at and at the worst find so offensive that they really don't belong in public discourse. So it's, it's, it's been hurtful to me to bear that responsibility, but I think it's important that I do. And I think we can't get to the other side of the fundamental problem of race in America unless we own our tragic history. And you can't understand that tragic history without Jefferson in the mix somewhere. Right, right. That all makes sense to me. And I can see the predicament that you described there for sure. And I just want to say, I think that you handled that beautifully in the program that we aired recently. And it's episode 36 of our uh, Village Squarecast podcast, a conversation with Thomas Jefferson. So you were in character as Thomas Jefferson for about two thirds of the program. And then you came back as yourself and continued the discussion. And I will have to say that when I listened to it, I noticed the part about race and it, it, it was a little hiccup for me, but then you guys circled right back around to it right away. As soon as you were you, you circled back around to it and had the conversation that I was kind of longing for. You know, you, you, went, you went deeper and you went there from your perspective now. And I really appreciated that. I appreciated the whole thing. I mean, it, it, it took both parts, like you're saying, and, you know, talking about gay marriage was the other thing that hearing you talk about it as Jefferson and even you, you were even funny when you did it. But then um, understanding that we're in a different context, we know different things, we have different values, and you really did a beautiful job of, of representing this very complicated uh, situation and talking about our history, which I'm sorry to say I was very ignorant on a lot of this and just just the things that that you taught me about the times, the things they were thinking about, what Jefferson's values were, how they're different than Hamilton's values. 
And so, you know, I, I understand your predicament, but I think you did a great job of trying to walk that fine line. And I certainly appreciate what you do and, and would hope that you would continue on. So thank you for sharing that though, on a personal note about just how it affects you. I can only imagine, you know, how it is in your thoughts as you wrestle with all of this. Well, you know, I, I did a program long ago for a women's prison in California. I like to do prison gigs. Not sure why, but I, I believe that the humanities must play a role there too. So I was invited to give this talk and I was Jefferson. And so I go into this room and there are probably 200 women there, most of them in their thirties and forties and predominantly black and Hispanic. And so I talked as Jefferson and took a lot of questions and it was really interesting. And then I broke character and I'll come back to that here shortly. But when I broke character, I started to sort of contextualize all this because I felt that I must. And then uh, a, a woman raised her hand, this, this lovely young woman. And she said, how do you feel like doing this? Like being, being embodying a slaveholder. And so I said, well, you know, it comes with the territory and I'm a humanities scholar and, and, but it does make me very uneasy. And there are times when I really wonder if it's, it's going to be um, more damaging than, than, than helpful. And she stood up and she pointed at me and she said, because I was wearing tights and buckled shoes and a wig and so on. She said, you're going to dress like that. You're going to get that shit. Uh, and that was the last, that's the last time I worried about it in quite that way, because her view was, look, we all get it that you're not Thomas Jefferson. We get it that this is a thing you do and we need to know our history. And so, you know, give it to us. And, you know, it's not, it's not like we're hearing these things for the first time. So that really helped me put it in perspective and that's why i break character i actually invented that vanessa so a lot of people do this one person show um we call it chautauqua it's a grant line under the national endowment for the humanities and i was one of the progenitors of this movement back in the 1980s but a lot of people do like work from a script or give their talk and take a few questions in character and then they bow and leave and i said no 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 Every Chautauqua performer, whether it's Andrew Jackson or Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Malcolm X or Thomas Jefferson or Theodore Roosevelt must break character at some point, step out of the costume and say, look, folks, you realize this is a historical illusion. And I want to go back and cover some of the ground that we've been over because I think that it requires the contextualization of a historian. And I wouldn't want to leave tonight with you just having heard from Malcolm X or just having heard from Jimmy Carter or just having heard from Theodore Roosevelt. And so that, that idea that you must break character is something I feel very strongly about. And it, it, it helps to ease the, the anxiety and the pain for an audience who's hearing effectively a racist, a great man who was a racist speak about questions that continue to bedevil us and really have brought this country to a very difficult moment here since the George Floyd killings and of course before too. And I think we need to face the past. We are all complicit. We need to face the past with courage. And if we don't, if we just pretend this, as some conservative legislators are now saying we should only teach happy American history, well, that's not going to get the job done. We're not going to get to the other side of this profound tension in American life unless we wrestle openly with these questions with a candor and an honesty 
that has probably been missing for much of our history. Right. That that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, what you were just talking about a minute ago about this being complicated uh, reminds me of something I actually wrote down from what you said during the dead presidents and living statues. You talked about how right now we are settling for simplistic narratives. And I wrote that down right away because it completely fits with a lot of things we're talking about right now at the Village Square. And uh, we're, we're doing this read of a book called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. And one of the things she talks about in there is how we need to complicate the narrative. And just everything that you're saying is fitting right in line with that because it's so easy for us and kind of where we are right now in a lot of our dialogue is, you know, us and them and the way that we paint people is, you know, you're all evil or you're all good and there's no, we're not allowing each other or folks in our past to be complicated, to be any more than that. And so I think that what you're doing by still portraying him and, you know, teaching us along the way, and then also having your own perspective is remarkable. And I, I agree that, that we need to continue to look at our past, our real past. And well, I don't think we can avoid it any longer. And I'm, I congratulate you for, for the initiatives, the proactive way that, that you all are doing that there in, in Tallahassee. You know, Tallahassee is a really interesting place from this perspective because it's part of the old South and part of the new South, but it's the South. There's no question about that. And I come from North Dakota, which, which has very different sets of race historical problems. I just wrote a book about North Dakota called The Language of Cottonwoods, Essays on the Future of North Dakota. And it's about our identity. And one of the problems here is that we live in two cultures, Native Americans, and there are Lakota and Ojibwe and Assiniboine and Mandan and Hidatsa and Arikara, uh, natives living in North Dakota. It's, we live in parallel universes almost. And there's enormous amount of mis mutual misunderstanding and, and disrespect and tension between the two cultures that doesn't get visible very often. But when it does get visible, as with the great pipeline controversy of 2016, it turns out that there are just, we see the world in fundamentally different ways. And so we all have to face this, but most white North Dakotans don't want to face it. They want to say, look, that happened a hundred years ago. I had nothing to do with it. I don't have a racist bone in my body, blah, blah, blah. And I, I of course, I've heard all this and I have some respect for it, but you know, I also read White Rage and White Fragility last year. And even though I'm a very well-educated historian, I was shocked by how little I really know about the sad, appalling race history of this country. I think everyone should read those books. Or if you don't like those books, read other books on this subject. But, you know, white people have lived in willful ignorance, deliberate denial and ignorance of the sad facts of our history. And uh, people of color know that, and they resent it, of course, because it's so palpably obvious to them. And we, white people, choose to to be bewildered and sort of caught by surprise when, when these things are pointed out to us. And that's not going to work any longer. You know, the the problems of the United States, one of the you know one of the greatest experiments in in humans living together ever, uh, and an experiment that's not finished we have been able to sweep these questions under the rug for most of our history and it shows and now we're going to face them 
And it's going to be a kind of a difficult period. And a lot of white people are going to do a lot of squirming and we're going to be uncomfortable. And that's essential that we, we accept that without bristling. You know, we all, of course, are tempted to bristle, but we must take a deep breath and listen. We don't have to agree with everything that's put to us, but we have to agree with a lot of it or we can't really go on. We can't say King's X. You know, we're always trying to say King's X. Uh, let's draw a line here and call that the past. And now we'll try to be better in the future. Um, I'm speaking in a pretty grim way here. I don't really wish to, Vanessa. I love what I get to do. I, I, I think we're an extraordinary country. We, ha we, we sort of trip our way into the future. We, we tend to wind up doing the right thing, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term. I'm a, I'm a Jeffersonian. I believe in human progress. I believe that, that humans are up to it. I just think we're living through a very difficult little period here, and we have to get through it before we can move to a higher level of American coexistence. Right. In your journey here, is there a specific insight that you feel like a lot of us are missing about our current circumstances as we strive to repair America. It's not my insight. Um, you know, so I'm a humanities scholar. And so a humanities scholar, to go back to your term from a, a short time ago, wants to complicate things because there are no simple narratives. You know, in a divorce proceeding, there's no, almost never one person who's perfectly right and the other person is perfectly wrong. It's complicated. Everyone has a story. Everyone's the hero of their own narrative. It's, it's almost always more rich, complex, perplexing than we like to think. So there's that. Um, that's what humanities scholars do at their best. It's not about judgment. It's about excavation of the truths and the perplexities of our history. But, but here's my insight, and it's not my insight. Um, I don't take any personal credit for it. But you meet lots of people. I meet lots of people who say, I'm not a racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And they resent being called racists because it sounds like we're talking about George Wallace in Alabama sneering and, and, and speaking hate. And that's not quite what we mean by this. So it's possible to be a very good human being, decent, respectful, not filled with hate, a person of goodwill and still be a racist because these are our race understandings are encoded in us from our earliest childhood and our the structures of our system, our in education, our judicial system, our courts, our prisons, um, the, the way we think about race itself, you know, the very conceptions of American life, the, the, the kinds of things we, we put up statues to commemorate that this, the set of understandings, prejudices, notions, stereotypes is encoded into people from their earliest childhood. And so by the time you're 20 years old, you are carrying the structural racism of American history, whether you like it or not. And you can be the best person in the world and still be carrying the sort of this cultural DNA. That's where people get tripped up because if, if you say, well, we're all complicit, then they're like, wait a minute. I, I'm a good and decent person. I, I don't bear any overt racial prejudices. Don't don't label me that way. I resent that. And I understand that, Vanessa. But the fact is that that's where we really need the breakthrough. There are fewer and fewer vicious 
sneering, slathering, foaming at the mouth racists, although we've seen quite a few in the last five years because they got a license to be loudmouths. But there are millions of us, and I'm one of them, believe me, who carry subtle racist DNA that we can't help but carry. And it, it, what's important is that we wake up to it and not feel threatened by the conversation. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, that you carry things that your culture encoded in you. It doesn't mean you're a bad person at all. It means that we have a lot of cultural excavation to do and we have to, and we have to be willing to face that and to change some of these systems and patterns and ways of seeing that didn't seem particularly outrageous in 1960 but seem cringeworthy in 2021. And I think that's where the breakthrough is going to come. But the people who are talking about this, as I am now, need to be much more respectful of the people that they're talking to. You know, shame, righteousness, blame, labeling, those things are not going to get this conversation accomplished. It has to be done with real generosity of spirit and an understanding that it's going to take a long, long time to bring all of us along into a a healthier understanding of what America means. Right. That makes a whole lot of sense and definitely touches on, you know, a lot of things that I wrestle with now as well. We all do. Yep. So I understand you have a, another new book called repairing Jefferson's America, a guide to civility and enlightened citizenship. Can you give us a little preview of that? Yes, thank you for asking about it, Vanessa. So it's called Repairing Jefferson's America, Guide to Civility and Enlightened Citizenship. And what it is, is an attempt to wrestle with the, the Jefferson problem. So I get it that Jefferson is a racist and an apartheidist and so on and so forth. I don't want to fight that battle in this book. I'm happy to have that conversation. We've been having it. I'm not afraid of that conversation, but I'm afraid that, to use a really silly cliche, that we're in danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater that because Jefferson now winds up being so compromised as a historical figure that we might jettison everything about Jefferson. And that would be a terrible, terrible mistake. So the book is an attempt to distill the Jeffersonian, you know, what is, what is Jeffersonian, but not necessarily Jefferson himself and say, that's what we need to do. So I think we need, we need a new Jeffersonian party. We might not be able to call it that, but we need civility. We need a, a, a respect for science. We need a majority rule. We need tolerance and goodwill. We need people to read more and not just uh, speak talking points. We need to surround ourselves with beauty. We need conversation. We need salon conversation of the kind that you do so tremendously well there in Tallahassee. We need to create safe spaces for people to disagree and to disagree, as, as Jefferson put it, like rational friends. And so this book is a series of chapters on different ways in which you and I, you, Vanessa, and I, Clay Jenkinson, can become more Jeffersonian. And we don't have to say we think Jefferson can do no wrong. We can just leave Jefferson out of it. But the, the values that he espoused, science, civility, majority rule, optimism, a respect, a belief that humans are up to this challenge, we desperately need those qualities right now. If you look at what's going on in Washington, or for that matter, in the state house there in Florida, 
the vitriol, the backbiting, the pettiness, the ad hominem, the the deliberate misrepresentation, the the the, the caricature, the brickbats, the 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 disgusting rhetoric, those things are not Jeffersonian. And we have got to climb out of that morass and into this more Jeffersonian world. So the book is short, just a couple of hundred pages. It has it ends with 13 of my favorite Jefferson letters. They're not the ones that you usually see in anthologies. They're the ones that I think reveal his vision of America best. And the book has chapters, for example, on, on the value of growing your own tomato. It has, you know, knowing a little bit about wine, taking, taking long walks, you know, having a health regimen in your life. Jefferson was essentially a vegetarian. He ate meat, but he, he ate meat sparely. Uh, so that's just the, the, the book. And by the way, I've, thanks to my listeners to the Jefferson Hour, we put that book in the hands of all the legislators in 15 states and every member of Congress, all 535 of them. So people who are Jefferson Hour listeners have written and said, I want to get these books in the hands of every person in Texas. I want to get these books in the hands of every legislator in Idaho or Colorado. So we're up to 15. My goal is that every legislator in America will have a copy of this. I'm not an idiot. I don't expect this to save America, but you have to start somewhere. And this book is really, a, I think, a, um, an inspiring guide to living a more civic-minded life and overcoming whatever this this paroxysm of rage and grievance and mutual mistrust that has come to you know, sort of characterize our politics, not only nationally, but to a very large extent in, in the state and local arena too. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled by that. That's fantastic. I can't wait to read it. It, it sounds really, really wonderful and something that we need a lot of right now. I, you know, one of, one of my favorite things about hearing you speak at now and in the programs that, uh, that we're airing of yours is how balanced you are and your particularly I, I noted this in the dead presidents and living statues that you're you're not letting any of us off the hook and you're not beating up on any of us only you know it's very balanced and real just about here we are here are the problems we face and here's what you know one side is not seeing about the other and here's what the other side is not seeing about about that other side and so that's a lot of what we're doing now is not that it's i'm on this side and i can only talk about how good we are and how evil they are and um i personally am craving this more balanced and real you know because you're not also saying hey everything's okay i'm here in the middle and and we don't have any problems you know you're helping us learn more about uh, the complexities of the problems and about the other side. And I just feel like there's not a lot of places that we get that right now. So thank you for being so real with those things. And I love out. what you're saying, Vanessa. You couldn't say anything that would be more music to my ears. You know, my my great mentor, a man named Everett Elbers of the North Dakota Humanities Council, said to me when I was just starting out, he said, look, here's what you need to remember. Judgment is easy. Understanding is hard. Judgment is easy. Understanding is hard. And that has been my motto. I don't always live up to it, of course, but I try every time I open my mouth publicly or in writing to be civil and to be respectful. And frankly, until we who are not Trumpites 
and I'm certainly not a Trumpite, but until we who are not Trumpites respect the rage and the grievance and the anger and the perplexity of the people who voted for Trump and believe so strongly in him, until we, until we give that agency, until we grant it legitimacy and distill from it what it's really about. It's ultimately not about Donald Trump. It's ultimately not about insult. It, 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 ultimately, it's about some sense that, that we have two countries and one of them sneers at the other, or maybe now they both sneer at each other. But we have to grant agency to people that whose views we find abhorrent or perplexing, and that comes from both sides. And until we do, this drift just gets worse. And so again, judgment is easy. Understanding is hard. You know, Vanessa, I must go to my book signing. Yes, I appreciate your time. You're amazing. And uh, thank you very much, Clay. Have a good thank day. Thank you. All right, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Clay Jenkinson. And if you're sad that we said goodbye so quickly, remember those two other episodes that feature him, A Conversation with Thomas Jefferson, episode 36, and Dead Presidents and Living Statues, episode 38. It's just completely fascinating to hear Clay as Thomas Jefferson in that first one I mentioned. And then also the statues discussion is so relevant and necessary at this moment in time. So check those out, episodes 36 and 38. All right. Now, I promised you a cameo from the one and only Vita Woodrich, a regular facilitator with us and a longtime volunteer. Vita joined us last time for our 50th episode, where we celebrated 15 years of the Village Square by taking a trip down memory lane. We talked about moments that inspired us and moments that made us laugh and cry, all while learning brilliant bridge building tips from people who have been immersed in this work for 15 years. That was such a fun and motivational episode, so do check it out if you haven't already. But anyway, here's one little clip from Vita that we cut from there because we thought it would be much better right here. So here's Vita telling us about the moment she met Clay Jenkinson. A couple of us who were volunteering, I will not pull them into this, but when we finally saw this transformation, there was just this um, Tasmanian whirlwind of giggling. And we were probably 20 to 30 feet away from Clay Jenkins. So he is dressed up as Thomas Jefferson fully. And it really was like... um, teenage fangirling like we couldn't help ourselves and it was like this is ridiculous we are in our 30s what is happening here it just it just was this um laughter contagion so he turns around I, I don't know if Liz was there or maybe Christine or something like that um they're going to go in the in, into Goodwood but he has to pan around towards us so we all immediately turned in there were four of us and and just got real close together like statues and somebody was like, is he, did he go inside yet? Did he go inside yet? And um, yeah, yeah, he did. So then we go inside and he's right near the door. And Christine, I think it was, was like, I'd love to introduce you. And the first thing I blurted out is where do you get your tights? And um, <laughs> I just, oh wow, I'm just, what did, uh, what did I'm, Clay say? Um, he was like, I can't, it's a, I think he's in a trade secret or something like that. 
but he did have a genuine laugh as opposed to either he's good at masking just absolute like uh, this is obnoxious or he genuinely thought oh that's a, that's something I think it was on the board at the time I think Christine even had to say this is a board member. <laughs> 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 we just just giggled through I mean we were listening it was really profound but I don't know what it was but I just said this older wigged white man is just making me giddy mm-hmm. it was absurd it was just absurd <laughs> a, a little starstruck moment there <laughs> yes. don't you guys just love Vita and Clay we've sure made some incredible friends during our 15 years at the village square all right before we sign off a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series We sure are grateful to them for their support, and we're grateful to you for joining us as fellow Americans on this bridge-building journey. We're also thankful for Bill and Jill Maddox for helping to make this episode possible through their generous donations. Please subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll see the fantastic lineup of programs we have planned for you. And to stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to A Rethink on Thomas Jefferson with humanity scholar Clay Jenkinson. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.